Professor Pulse. Yes. Dr. Jeffrey Pulse. What should I call you, actually? You may call me whatever you like. Okay. We'll call so, you Dr. Pulse. We'll see. It'll probably fluff. See away. how it goes. Yeah. yeah. Right. So how are things going? Things are going well. Still here in Fort Wayne? Still here in Fort Wayne doing that seminary stuff. So. Yeah. Good old seminary stuff. But mm-hmm. actually, one of the things that's unique about you, I think you might be, at least when I was here, you were the only one. So you're a professor. You do mm-hmm. placements. You dealt with, you get to know all the students. You have to deal with the whole process of placing them, which I don't Correct. think anyone listening wants to hear that whole process. No, that's a long, tedious yeah. discussion. Our viewership would drop very yeah. quickly. <laughs> Immediately, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, but also, you are, you're a parish pastor as well, right? Correct. And you're one of the... Go ahead. You're well, I, I was until May. At the end of May, I retired from being the vacancy pastor after 15 years at uh, Shepherd of the City. That's a long vacancy. It was a long vacancy. That's longer than most people's calls. Yeah. There were still members there, and I kind of miss it. But, you know, it was time. I'm 65. My wife said, I need to slow down, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Well, uh, whatever. So I'm now running around teaching more in different places. So I'm not slowing down. I'm just changing gears or yeah. something. Was that grounding for you as from being a professor, but having that outlet where you can preach? And just yeah, kind of- it was very important. So I was 22 years in the parish before I was called to the seminary. And the first year here was just misery because I was not connected to a parish as a pastor. Mm-hmm. Sitting in the pew was very difficult for me. And so when I had the opportunity, the opportunity came, Dr. Hal Sinkbile was doing that. And he retired and he asked me if I would like to take over. And I jumped at it because I wanted to be in the parish. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I had the best of both worlds and it really was grounding. And I think it garnered the respect of the students that I was actually doing what I was teaching them to do, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, it was very good, but really it was best for me. Mm-hmm. It really was. I mean, Shepherd of the City was very grateful. Thank you. Thank you. But I had to thank them in return because it really was about that. So does theology take on a different emphasis in the seminary setting versus the parish setting? Well, you know, the seminary when I was here was extremely academic minded. Mm-hmm. It was directed to the old classic academic model, which was fine to a certain extent, but it it did not really uh, manifest itself in a practical way to the parish, mm-hmm. not as much as it, it should. So they changed the curriculum, and the new curriculum that we use now is more parish-oriented based on pastoral acts. Mm-hmm. So everything... I mean, theoretically, you know, we're still tweaking, mm-hmm. but everything points to the pastoral acts in the parish, mm. you know, doing ministry. So not so – it's academic, but it's not strictly focused on an academic track. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I, it makes a big difference, and it makes a big difference if you're having that sort of curriculum to have – Professors who have that experience, they know what it's like to be in the parish and mm-hmm. all, of, all of this. Yeah. And uh, and we have quite a few now. When I got here, I had the longest – I was the longest serving parish pastor mm-hmm. on campus. And then I started at Shepherd of the City, so I had 37 years in the parish, mm-hmm. if you include Shepherd of the City. Mm-hmm. So um, 
Yeah, we're we're bringing in some of our newer professors that got significant parish time, and that's really been uh, the response has been healthy from the students, especially. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, the church will benefit from these pastors who go out with that background have, training. Do you have a couple like, um, I guess? You know, like top two or three or main things that you want students who are going through the seminary to develop, knowing what parish life is like, knowing what kind of questions that parishioners and, and mm-hmm. you know, people that aren't in a t- seminary type setting, right. the things they're wrestling with. Are there certain things that you try to get across to pastors and training so that they can kind of? Uh, yeah, they're the main thing, because this like the seminary, we can give them tools. Mm hmm. And we can fill the toolbox, but I want them to be able to leave here and be able to think theologically. Mm-hmm. So my first week in the parish, I dealt with two or three things that they didn't cover at seminary. Mm-hmm. And I, but I had the tools. I had to figure out how to use some of those tools, but I knew enough to be able to sort it out. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was pretty rough, I'm sure, but you know, you learn. But hopefully, we're sending them out with really good tools, and they will at least have the ability to think these things through theologically. Mm-hmm. Anybody can regurgitate stuff onto a test mm-hmm. uh, or a paper or whatever. But can you? But can you use this toward parish ministry? Mm-hmm. You know, to whatever the challenges might be. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's really my main goal yeah. is to help them get to that point. Then I think they're as ready as they'll probably ever get. Yeah. So My first day, I don't, I'm sure I didn't ever tell you this. So it was my, my very first day. So I was unpacking boxes, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and the other pastor was off on an injury. And we got a call and ended up sitting down with it was a, a woman and her mother so grandmother and mm-hmm. mother of a 14 year old that had just committed suicide oh, and they came in day one mm. and they weren't part of the church but they'd reached out to the church too so they were coming from kind of a secular background and i'm mm-hmm. sh- i mean the, afterwards they they were they sent a letter and were thankful i know for a fact that i did probably a c minus type job but it was <laughs> but it wasn't an f job and that's the right, point right. and it was it was just enough to say I don't really know what to do this, but I, I kind of know what not to say. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got enough of that kind of. Uh, and you were there. And you were yeah. present. Yeah. And sometimes that's just what's needed because presence is a big deal in ministry. Yeah. Show up, be there. Sometimes it's best keep your mouth shut and just hold the hand. Yeah. You know? You know, my wife says the same thing. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure she does. It, yeah. uh, it does has a broader appeal yeah. <laughs> to it, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, so certainly you do a lot of the formation of individuals that are going to want to be pastors. But one of your big areas of expertise is dealing with the Old Testament, mm-hmm. knowing how to understand the Old Testament. Uh, Joseph, for instance. Um, let's dive into that. If you can talk through somebody who – you know, is reading the Old Testament, it might struggle with the Old Testament. You mm-hmm. know, the Gospels are much easier to maybe understand. Um, what, where, where do people start? What's a good kind of lens for somebody who's reading the Old Testament and understanding Scripture? Well, I think knowing, first of all, just the broad foundation of the Old Testament. And by that, I mean basically – 
Scripture, Old and New Testament, tells us who God is, who man is, and who we are in relationship to one another. So to understand the relationship, because that's how Scripture is written. You know, God lays it out in the very beginning. He has this great relationship with Adam and Eve. They walk in the garden, talk, and this is a very face-to-face, real presence, mm-hmm. a reality. Of course, the fall into sin messes up the relationship. The problem, though, there's a messed up relationship. Sin is a secondary problem, but it's a problem because it affects the relationship. Hmm. So relationship becomes something to keep your eyes on. Because in reality, in the Old Testament, God is considered to be married to his creation, to his people especially, and specifically then to Israel. And because that's the bride, the wife in the relationship. Mm-hmm. And this carries all the way through Scripture. You you see it in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, you know, basically God, uh, the bridegroom, Christ Jesus, the bridegroom, the church is the bride. Mm-hmm. This relationship, though, was established very, very early in, in Genesis. In fact, right away in the beginning. Mm-hmm. So when Israel is unfaithful, they're accused of a whoring after other gods or playing the harlot. Mm-hmm. You know, idolatry is a big problem in the Old Testament, and that's related to relationship. It's related to if you're not, if you if you commit idolatry, you're you're committing adultery. Hmm. You're violating. You're cheating on the bridegroom. How are those two God. the same or similar? Say it again. How, how are those two the same or similar? Adultery, idolatry. Mm-hmm. Now, both. Well, obviously, adultery is a relationship issue, right? Yeah, yeah. And you're cheating. You're, and that's what. That's what basically what idolatry is. You are chasing after another god or another nation or, you know, in our context could be anything, right? Materialism, yeah, yeah. whatever your idol is, but you're really establishing a relationship with something other than your god. Mm-hmm. And so therefore you're, it's adultery. Okay. Yeah. And so that's kind of how they wrap their head around it. And so, you get all the language throughout the the Old Testament that points to that. And the whole idea is, of course, the sin's gotten away and sin has polluted or uh, almost, if not completely, destroyed the relationship between God and man. And so now the whole of Scripture is about restoring that relationship. So when you're going through the Old Testament and you're reading, you're kind of starting with the standpoint that God values perfect relationship, sin has gotten in the way of that perfect relationship, and you're kind of watching this then play out through Mm -hmm. these Old Testament stories, through the law, through the sacrificial system. Is that right? So these are just kind of – these are parts of that narrative of a relationship. part of the – because the relationship really is the foundational thing. Mm -hmm. Dr. Wenthe always used to call it identity, Mm -hmm. but it's the same thing. Okay, yeah. So your identity as the bride of Christ or as the – the wife of God, so to speak, as Israel is. Um, well, you, you, Jeremiah 31, I will make with them a new covenant, not like the old covenant, which they broke, declared the Lord, mm-hmm. even though I was a husband to them, mm-hmm. declares the Lord. Hosea does the same thing. Got some in Isaiah, you know, mm-hmm. that husband-wife language. And it's a very... Even in just a very common 
um, verb in the Hebrew, yada, to know. Okay. It means it's so much more than just, I know where I left my car keys. Mm -hmm. Much deeper than that. It's an intimate relationship word. In fact, it even has some sexual uh, connotations. That's so, how it's used in the Bible, right? To, to know yeah. a woman. Let's see, Adam and Eve, Genesis 4.1. Adam knew hmm. his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth. And that's the language God uses for Israel. Hmm. I know you. I know you. And so you get uh, Song of Solomon, which is really a picture of of the Lord God or Christ and the church. Mm -hmm. That's a real big picture there. You get uh, Hosea, who's got... Um, Who's called upon God to to um, marry a woman of loose moral compass mm -hmm. and uh, named Gomer, and so he does. And then they have these children. You know, Jezreel. Well, first was I think the first one was Lo Loami, meaning not my people. Okay, and then Lo Ruach, which means not <laughs> mercyed or not loved. That's an actual sound of what Hebrew sounds Hebrew like. Hebrew is right? a lot like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you, you know, just sin boldly. Yeah. So, <laughs> and then Jezreel. Well, then, of course, Gomer runs off and plays a harlot with all other men. And then God tells Hosea, go and buy her back, pay for her to be your bride, hmm. which he does. Then he changes and the name of the kids. Get changed to mm -hmm. from Loami, not my people, to Ami, my people, mm -hmm. and is um, pitied or loved, mercied. Sometimes mm -hmm. you can translate it, and then Jezreel stays the same. It's a long story; we won't go there. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, then God says to Hosea, "Let me tell you what this means." I'm sure Jose is very excited to hear that because he's probably had a pretty rough go of it. Mm -hmm. And God said, you know, I created Israel. I love her. She was my bride, but she went to whoring after other gods and chasing after or playing the harlot with other nations. Mm -hmm. So she is not my people. She's not loved. But... The day is coming when I will buy her back to be my bride, not with gold or silver. And this is a little extrapolation here, but with the holy precious blood of my own son. So he's talking about this relationship being restored. Man continues to hurt and destroy this relationship, but God continues to restore it. Hmm. And in Christ Jesus, you have that that ultimate restoration. So, and after that, of course, the church goes forward as the bride of Christ also as, and again, I'm jumping motifs back and forth here, but also as the womb that bears fruit, hmm. bringing other things that all men, all people might know Christ Jesus as Lord. Mm -hmm. So, so it's these, it's these small stories which in some way mirror this larger story. So you're oh, talking yes. about Hosea mm -hmm. and his unfaithful wife. And you're, you are talking about that. That's a real story, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. But that is mirroring or teaching you about the larger story. Yeah, it foreshadows what's, what that which is to come. But it's certainly all of this is historically true, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. 
And these are, you use the word motif, but you like the word theme, right? Oh, I like the word motif. <laughs> theme is boring. It's yeah. just, but motif is French. Theme, motif, you know. It's, it's catchier. Yeah, it's catchier. So you got to pick a catchy word. Yeah. If we, yeah. Had, if we had to market theme, Jeff Pulse wants to talk about theme. Probably that, won't go very far. But if probably, you put motif there. Oh, yeah. Then. Now you're talking. Yeah. Yeah. So uh-huh. what's this, uh, can you walk our listeners through, so. What's this word motif? How does that apply to what you're talking mm-hmm. about? And then maybe we can even walk through some of these examples of how motifs play out. Sure. Well, let me um, – okay, let me give a basic broad definition of how motifs work. Mm-hmm. And then I'll, I'll just take a motif and run it through. How's okay. that? Sounds good. So motifs are like um, – we'll call – like themes. <laughs> I hate that word. Okay. <laughs> so motifs – Begin in Genesis, most of them, okay, vast majority. They go through Scripture, not in a straight line at all, but are kind of woven and tangled up with other motifs. Mm-hmm. And then they eventually go through the life of Christ. And as they go through Christ, uh, especially in his uh, Holy Week, death, resurrection, that sort of thing, they tend to, Dr. Just would say, the great reversal, mm-hmm. but and sometimes it is a great reversal. Sometimes it's just a tweak, but it's always different. Mm-hmm. And then they continue on and usually come to fulfillment in Revelation mm-hmm. or what it will look like fulfilled, Revelation shows you. So those those motifs actually weave through our lives then? Is that what you're saying? Um, yes. Well, we're living in the midst of it. Sure. We can see it like in the church, mm-hmm. uh, how we sometimes you'll see those motifs popping up Actually, frequently in the liturgy and worship, mm-hmm. you know, all of that sacraments, you know, are very motif heavy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that so as New Testament church, that those motifs are still flowing, mm-hmm. still moving toward revelation, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, so then, and, and there's a lot of these motifs. And another thing about them is they tend to um, be certain spots where you see all sorts of motifs come together. Mm-hmm. Like in one in an event, like Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, okay, or Passover, something like that, or maybe it's in um, a location, Jordan River, Temple Mount, Mount Sinai, that sort of thing, uh, and also characters mm-hmm. like a Moses, Joseph, uh, David, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things. Uh, the characters are all messianic, Christological would be better, Christological figures. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of these things have Christological character. I mean, this is how you read the Old Testament and see Jesus. Mm-hmm. You um, you follow, follow these kind of motifs. You'll see how uh, all of Scripture witnesses to Christ, just like Jesus himself said as he taught on the road to Emmaus, right? Mm-hmm. He explained how all the prophets and the law and the prophets – Pointed to him, all scripture, all the writings. Well, you know, he's not talking about Matthew. That hasn't been written yet. So, Mm -hmm. or Corinthians, whatever. So, in other words, he's saying when you're reading the story of Moses, you're actually learning about the Christ. Not because Moses is the Christ, but because you use the word. Yeah. yeah, Because I'm the new Moses. He's the new Moses. So, his life thematically will reflect Moses. Mm Mm-hmm. And vice versa. I mean, it goes back and forth either way. I think you have to learn to read the Old Testament through the New and then turn around and read the New Testament back through the Old. I think that's very important. 
do you like the phrase, um, uh, the old, what is it? In the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed. In the New Testament, the Old Testament is revealed. So the New Testament's there through the Old Testament, but it's yeah. revealed in the person. The of only Christ. thing I don't like about that is I don't think it's all that concealed. Okay. Yeah. It is concealed a little. It's mm-hmm. a little foggy, but not as, it's not like it's completely, it's sort of like the difference between pulling the, the curtains and you can't see through them are just pulling these, what they call shears, you know? Is that the, like the thing behind the curtain? The filmy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there are hotel rooms and. Yeah. Yeah. Because otherwise it fades the furniture of the sun. So yeah. that's a was, Midwest thing. Yeah. <laughs> so I tried that. When my last parish up in the northwest, uh, Pacific Northwest, nobody had shears. I mean, there's no sun. Yeah. They didn't need it. So, yeah. you know. My uh, parents' house doesn't even have shade. So, we were sleeping in the upstairs bedroom and the, the lights are just flowing in. So, they- Well, you know, in the Midwest, the truth yeah. is, if the sun's up, so should you be. Yeah. Because <laughs> there's work to be done, buddy. That's right. That's right. Farm boy here. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, more like shears than- yeah, so you can curtains. see, but through, as it says in Corinthians 13, but now we see through a glass darkly, mm-hmm. but then we will see face to face. Right now we're kind of looking through, we see, but it's a little fuzzy. Yeah. That's kind of what that example I would use, but there are other examples you could use too. So Yeah, I think Augustine, I think it was Augustine, maybe it was a, I think it was Augustine, he said, he described it as, um, it's like a room fully furnished. Mm-hmm. So everything's everything's already there, um, meaning the Old Testament. And then the New Testament is like a, you know, a light being turned on or mm-hmm. the window being opened. So now the light shines in. So it's all there and you're kind of bumping into it and you can't sure. quite put all the details to it yet. But then that light comes in and now you see the whole furnished mm-hmm. room that's been there for the But beginning. you have a vague idea where things are lay, laying out, how mm-hmm. they're laid out, right? Yeah. You have a pretty, I mean, reasonable idea. But you're probably not sure what color the couch is. Yeah. You know. Sure. That that's not bad. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll let Augustine, Augustine I'll let, let Augustine let, know it's Yeah, let him tell him I'm I approve. Yeah. Yeah. That's good, good. important, I'm sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so I think um these motifs uh really uh reveal mm-hmm. the Christological nature so uh, of scripture. Uh, let me just I'll, – I'll go through a motif, okay? Yeah. And uh, we'll see if that helps. So the one I like to use uh, is the garment motif. Mm-hmm. And so we begin the garment motif in Genesis in the garden with no garments, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the Adam and Eve are, are naked and they're not ashamed. Now, it's an interesting point. So – why are those points made? Why are, why are those details included? Well, in Hebrew, shame, nakedness, and sin are all equated after the fall. So the problem isn't that they don't realize that they're shameful and naked. The problem is that our the reality is that isn't shameful and naked. But once they sin, all of these things wrap together. And so the first thing Adam and Eve want to do the minute they uh, eat of the fruit, they have to cover themselves or want to cover themselves Mm -hmm. because they know something's wrong now and they know they've done something terrible. Mm -hmm. 
and so they make fig leaves, right? But intuitively, they don't really think that's going to be good enough because they also hide in the bushes. Hmm. So obviously, it didn't work, and God, after he gives them the blessings and curses, right, both end, and as they're being put outside the garden, the first thing God does for them is provide garments, clothing, animal skins. Okay, that I've read a commentary, it's not Lutheran, that said the reason is that because God knows the fig leaves won't hold up in the weather. <laughs> yeah, missed it by that much. Just okay. that much. Yeah. Just that much. Like Iowa State playing Nebraska yeah. in three. Yeah. <laughs> we missed a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so so there you have God doing this for them. And of course, now you can read this motif backwards, you know, New Testament back to the Old Testament. So Luther and many of the early church fathers claimed that those animal skins were lamb skins. Hmm. Now the Hebrew doesn't say lamb skins, it says animal skins. But they're reading it backwards, thinking, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's how they're seeing this, these, these sacrificed animals, the blood shed, and they're them being clothed, covered. And the word to cover is also to atone. Mm -hmm. So these, they see all of that connecting. And so you start picking up how this motif's going to set up. You've got animal in this case, lamb or goat, which is the same. Young lamb, young goat are the same word in Hebrew until much later on hmm. in Scripture. So, you know, don't get weirded out by, behold, the goat of God. It's just not, doesn't have the same ring. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, don't let that bug you. So we have uh, the blood, the lamb, and the idea of covering, hiding. Mm-hmm. Now, in case of Adam and Eve, the fig leaves, that's man's attempt to cover, to hide, or to pay for his own sin. Mm -hmm. And we know how well that works out. In the other case, though, this is a God-provided garment that atones for, that covers mm -hmm. sin. And you said atone and cover is the same word in the Hebrew. Uh, it, it can be, yes. It can Kippur, be. Okay. Uh, the day of Kippur. atonement. Yeah. But the, the mercy seat. Which is the Septuagint language of Elasterian. Okay. We translate mercy seat, which is fine, but it's actually in Hebrew, it's koparoth, which means covering. Okay. That's all, you know. Bennett was telling me about all this this morning as well. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the atonement covering. Yeah. Know. Okay. So, anyway, so we, we see that kind of getting set up. And so now we get. You start working your way through, and there's a lot of them. So we'll just jump. Can I, can I pause real quick before sure. we go on to that? Because, um, so I've heard somebody, I've never had a good answer, but I think I think you just gave it. So I just want to kind of uh, highlight that or make sure. Mm -hmm. um, someone, it was a, I think her father was Eastern Orthodox or Greek Orthodox, some, some kind of Orthodox. And she was saying that in, in their tradition, um, and she made me kind of look at it in the English. And in the English, it doesn't say animal skins. It just says skins. And she said that, and I don't want to say that this is definitely the Eastern Orthodox position because mm -hmm. I haven't looked into it that much. But she said that their understanding was that Adam may not have had skin before this, and this was the first time that they were. Oh no, skin. kidding! Yeah, I, so I don't know that. if you've come across that or not. But you're saying it, in oh. the Hebrew, it does kind of articulate that uh, yeah. this is animal skin. Animal skin, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not their own. It's 
it's bestowed on them. Yeah. But it's not like they didn't have skin before. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so anyway, so I'm going to jump to Jacob Esau. Okay. And then you remember uh, Jacob conned his brother out of the uh, inheritance rights with the bowl of soup, you know, when he was hungry. But now it's time to give the blessing, which is much more important mm-hmm. in in the, the Hebrew way of thinking. And the blessing is a Messianic promise, covenant, you know. So the Messianic line, well, Isaac tells Esau, go kill some wild game, prepare it for me, I'm going to give you the blessing. Well, he's not supposed to get the blessing, and Isaac actually knows that. Mm-hmm. And Rebecca hears this, and of course, she's not going to let that happen. And so she tells um, Jacob, go to your brother's closet, get one of his robes, put it on, because just before Tide, everybody smells like <laughs> themselves. But Jacob's a pretty slick guy. He said, that's probably not going to work because I'm a smooth-skinned man. Mm-hmm. And Esau's pretty hairy. She said, don't worry, I'm fixing these two goats. We'll put the goat skins over your arm, mm. and you'll be hairy. So anyway, as you know, it all worked out that way. Isaac is deceived. He gives the blessing to, to Jacob. And so in this, you use a garment to deceive Mm-hmm. Man-made garment, deceiving, and you have the shedding of uh, blood of a goat, mm-hmm. and and you see the deception is uh, successful. Mm-hmm. So if you go right over then to Joseph, chapter thirty-seven, you have Joseph and his cool coat, not a multicolored dream coat. Okay. That's a scepter. Or a technicolor dream coat. Not or... a technicolor dream coat. Not so a coat not of any colors. Colored. Uh-uh. Okay. Not in the Hebrew. Yeah. You gotta love a guy like Luther who goes on and on for eleven pages in his Genesis commentary saying it's not multicolored. And then in his German translation, he says multicolored. <laughs> I mean, it's just how Luther operates. So yeah. he's, he's hilarious. So yeah. it's fun, fun to read. So but in the in the uh, Hebrew, it's a long sleeve tunic that goes to the palm of your hands and the ankles of your feet. Okay. So, but it's special. That's the key. It stands mm-hmm. out. It's a special gift. It separates Joseph from his brothers in many ways, and they have a fit, of course. And so Jacob sends Joseph to bring back a report on his brothers and or spy on them and tattle on them, mm-hmm. as we would say in the old days. And he goes, and by golly, they recognize him from a distance because he's doing what? He's wearing that cool coat, which mm-hmm. really ticked him off to begin with. He's got other coats. But Joseph, he's 17 years old. He's like acting like a 17-year-old, I suppose you would say. Mm-hmm. So they say, let's kill him. Then we'll see how those dreams worked out that he had with us bowing down to him. But they get talked out of killing him. They throw him in a pit. They strip off his clothes, off his robe. Mm -hmm. And he gets sold into Egypt. It's a long story. But the reality is now they have to figure out who's going to tell dad and what are we going to tell dad. So they decide, hey, I got an idea. We'll take a goat from the flock. We'll kill it. We'll put its blood on the coat. So they send that 
cloak back to Jacob, saying, we found this, please identify. Mm -hmm. And of course he does. And he says, surely a wild beast has torn Joseph to pieces. He's dead. That's what they want him to think. Mm -hmm. So you have, again, the garment used to deceive. You've got blood, shedding of blood, and a goat. That was chapter 37. Chapter 38, we get Judah and Tamar. Mm. Remember this uh, story? You know, Tamar is um, married, or jo Judah marries Tamar to one of his sons, his oldest. Mm -hmm. And his son is wicked, evil, and doesn't tell us why, how, but God just kills him. Mm -hmm. And so, as is proper according to Leverite law, then uh, Tamar is given to Onan to um for um for a wife and their firstborn son will belong to to um oh I think it's seer or something. Okay. And so that does not make Onan very happy. Because mm -hmm. hey, follow follow the Benjamins. Mm -hmm. Because if if uh Seir it's not quite right. Sila is the other one. Ur, it's Ur. Okay. If Ur gets a son, then the double inheritance, the double portion goes to that son, and Onan's cut out. He only gets a single portion. Hmm. Onan doesn't want to provide a son for Ur, so he can have the double portion. Mm -hmm. So he spills his seed on the ground. Mm -hmm. Now, as you know, there's a whole thing out there called onanism, which is dealing with masturbation. Yeah, yeah. Bull hockey. Not the point of the story. It's not the point of the story. Yeah. I'm not going to go on record as saying whether masturbation is good or bad. I'm just saying it shouldn't be called onanism because that's not what he's doing. Yeah. He is, He is. well, I say follow the money. Yeah. So It's another issue that's being presented it's in another, this narrative. Yes. Yeah. And so they need some sort of proof text, so that's how you get these things. Yeah. So anyway, God doesn't like that either. That's evil, so he just kills him too. Mm -hmm. Now Tamar's, there's one boy left named Selah, and Judah tells uh, Tamar, he's too young, so go to your father's house, live there until he's of an age, then we'll... Of course, Judah has done the math, and one plus one equals two to him, so Tamar is married to my sons, and they keep dying. It must she must be the common denominator. Wickedness is the common denominator, but Judah's not buying that. He thinks it's Tamar's fault, so he's not going to do that one. So when she goes to her father's house, he gives Selah to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Tamar is now without options. Mm -hmm. So she Judah's wife dies. <clears throat> he's lonely. He's on his so he goes out to shear sheep with uh, the boys, the shepherds at sheep shearing camp. For our audience from Wisconsin and Michigan, you know this is deer hunting camp. <laughs> Hunt deer during the day and play cards. In their case, drink fermented goat's milk at night. Yeah, <clears throat> that's where it's going to happen. Okay. He's on his way to sheep shearing. I mean, yeah, sheep shearing camp. 
And Tamar knows he's coming, so she exchanges her garment, her garment of widowhood, for the garment of a temple prostitute and sits by the side of the road. Hmm. Well, when he comes by, he's lonely. He sees this temple prostitute. He says, how much for a little do re mm -hmm. And I don't want to be bleeped out of here by the uh, engineer. So I think do re mi is not going to get us kicked <laughs> off YouTube. <laughs> okay. Got their onanism. I guess yeah. we're ready for yeah. do re mi now. So he says, oh, she says, how about a goat from your flock? Okay. Do re mi ensues. He sends back the goat with his manservant, and there's no no temple prostitute because in the meantime, she's exchanged her temple prostitute garb for her widowhood garment. Mm. And so nothing's found out until later when she gets pregnant. But the point is you've used the garment to deceive again, mm -hmm. right? And there's a goat involved, all that. Well, that's chapter 38. What about chapter 39? Immediately, we have Joseph in Potiphar's house hmm. as a slave. And Joseph, as a slave boy, he is said to be handsome in form and of appearance. Same words actually used for his mother, Rachel, so it must be a genetic thing. Hmm. So he looked a lot like Bennett. Yeah, I'm yeah. pretty sure that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let's just say that if you're a slave, it's not really good to be handsome foreman of appearance mm. because the master's wife is going to get ideas, and she does. And she says to Joseph, oh, come with me, a little do re mi's in order here. And mm -hmm. he fights it, you know, and all this. And then one day he comes back into the house. Another, none of the men, servants are there, which, by the way, he knows because he's in charge of the whole household. But that's another story. Hmm. I don't want to do everything in one podcast. Okay. So he comes back in. She grabs hold of him. He thinks better of this whole idea, and he runs away, but he leaves his coat behind, his cloak. Hmm. And, of course, she uses it to deceive her husband and says, this slave you brought here, he's trying to blah, 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 do re mi, all that kind of stuff. And so you have a garment used to deceive. Mm-hmm. But in this case, no animals were harmed in the filming of this episode. Mm -hmm. So now we keep moving forward. And I'm going to jump to – and there's a lot more even just in the Joseph narratives here. With with the cloak. Oh, yeah. 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 But we're going to jump all the way to uh, Numbers in Yom Kippur. Okay. Big event. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And in the Day of Atonement – we have two goats. Remember, this is the day, the one day of the year, the high priest goes behind the curtain of the temple, mm -hmm. and he takes the blood of one goat and puts it on the uh, the mercy seat, the koparoth, mm -hmm. the covering, atonement covering. And the other goat is the one they lay the sins of all the people on, the scapegoat or what I call the sin bearer goat, mm -hmm. that's what he is, and the, they take the sins out of the camp to cleanse the camp so that so that the Lord can live amidst the people without killing them with his holiness, basically. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, what we sometimes miss in this whole thing is that the high priest has to change his garment to go back there. Mm -hmm. He takes off all the fancy stuff and he puts on a white linen garment. That's very significant because a white linen garment coming forward 
is very attached to this garment motif. Luther and some of the early church fathers will even look back and say that Joseph's garment was a white linen garment. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it might be a little anachronistic to the time, but it was certainly white. Mm -hmm. That's important to them, Mm -hmm. unless they're doing the German translation. So, white linen garment only worn behind the curtain, Mm -hmm. worn once, one day out of the year, and it's God-provided garment. And blood of a goat is, you know, shed and used. Uh, The garment really hides. I mean, the high priest has to take a bath. He's got to be sacrificed before he has to be anointed. But in the long run, he's still a sinner. So the white linen garment hides that. Mm -hmm. So you have a covering going on here. Is there any connection with, because isn't it when Moses is up on Mount Sinai in Exodus? There's it goes through a lot of details of the the garment of what the high priest is going to look like. Yes, right? like uh-huh. almost it's like a, I don't remember it's like a chapter or something, right? It's just, oh yeah, it's way more details than you would ever yes. expect. So does that fit into this? It does in some some aspects. Yes. Okay. Yep. Not not as I think it fits in from the direction that the high priest. What is the role of the high priest? Mm-hmm. Sacrifice, right? For this for the people. He's he's in charge of making sure sacrifice happens. So mm-hmm. he's also the mediator. He stands between God and the people. Okay. And those sort of things. It wraps it in kind of from a little different direction. Okay. It is interesting, those high priestly garments. So if you look at Zechariah, where um, the high priest Joshua is spoken of as having filthy, dirty uh, robes, mm-hmm. and they strip them down and put on beautiful Beautiful, clean. I don't remember if they're white linen or not, but beautiful robes. Mm-hmm. It's all part of that's part of the garment motif for sure. Okay, yeah. So in Yom Kippur, you got all the pieces again, mm-hmm. and the white linen garment, which covers covers your sin, but it's God covering it. Mm-hmm. Very significant because man's always trying to cover it, but it's more of a deception covering. So whatever man's use, I mean, I think all this the ones you've given, man is using it as a deceptive tool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And generally, the Hebrew word for this is bagad, at least the, the root, meaning to deceive, okay. to hide, to cover. And kind of a eh, semi-negative term, right? But kapor, another garment word, to cover, to atone, is much more positive. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, it's probably 70% accuracy. Kapor is used for God-provided garments, bagad for... Man-made garments. Okay. But again, it's not 100% by any means. And I don't want to get ahead of you, but this is going back to this. You've got the fig tree or you've got the fig leaves that Adam and Eve are looking to go. cover themselves yes. deceptively. And then you've got the animal skins, which God uses to cover them actually. Yes. Mm-hmm. You're picking up what okay. we're laying down here. Okay. okay. Maybe we can move my my grade up a little bit. Oh, from, yeah. You did from, need a little boost. Yeah. Tell you. <laughs> so we get to – um Isaiah. Now, Isaiah's a great guy, except you don't want to take him to a movie because he'll tell you the end of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's always giving it away. Mm-hmm. So that's why the Old New Testament people like Isaiah. He tells them what these things mean because they think they know what I mean. Well, I don't know. What does Isaiah say? <laughs> you know, he's always giving it away. So he talks about the garments. Mm-hmm. Um, the most famous, perhaps, is the. Uh, all your deeds are as filthy rags. Mm. 
Now, in Hebrew, it really is a reference to menstrual clause. Okay. So, so you're not really dirty. You're unclean because a woman in her menstrual cycle is separated. She can't go into the temple. Mm-hmm. So it's worse than being dirty because now you have to go through cleansing, seven days, all, all that ritual. Mm-hmm. So he says our deeds, our attempts – to cover our own sins are like filthy rags. They separate us further from God. Mm. Okay? Fig leaves don't do any good. Mm-hmm. Filthy rags, not good. However, he says a little later, might even be earlier, he's never in chronological order, Isaiah. Mm-hmm. Such a pain. Yeah. He's so un-American. Yeah. So he says, one is coming who will clothe you in robes of righteousness and garments of salvation. That gives it away. The garment motif's about Jesus. Mm -hmm. So he also says, you know, and talks about bride adorning his bride. A bridegroom adorns the bride, things like that. Mm -hmm. That's great stuff. So then you get Zechariah. Then we jump into the New Testament. Well... When Jesus is born, he's wrapped in swaddling clothes. When he leaves, he leaves his grave clothes behind. Uh, people, Some people know, but swaddling clothes and menstrual rags, by the way, and what they wrap people in, bodies, are all the same cloths. Hmm. The same, they're just rags. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Shroud of Turin. So, anyway, so <laughs> anyway, so... Why do we need to know that Jesus came in and was wrapped in swaddling clothes? When he left, he left the clothes behind. Why is that important? Mm -hmm. Because part of this motif, that's why. Mm. So now Jesus likes parables, and parables are understandable if you know motifs. Mm -hmm. And so he tells this parable about the um, wedding banquet, and all these guests are invited, but one guy shows up wearing his own clothes. Mm Mm-hmm. The tradition is the bridegroom provides the garments Mm -hmm. for the guests. Here's a guy wandering around with his own clothes, and he ends up getting kicked out, right, into the outer darkness, a place of weeping, gnashing of teeth. Well, the guy is wearing fig leaves. He's wearing Mm -hmm. filthy rags. The other people are wearing the God-provided garment. Mm -hmm. This guy isn't. Okay, so let's then move to Holy Week. It begins with the Sunday of the Passion, or what I like to call Palm Sunday still, because I'm old and didn't know that it wasn't Palm Sunday. The liturgists, man, those liturgy guys. You can't keep up with them. Yeah, I know, they keep changing things. Yeah. Nothing ever changes except all of everything. So, <laughs> so uh, Palm Sunday, they're coming in, the people know, well, first of all, they know who Isaiah is. Isaiah is the most quoted guy in the New Testament. Hmm. The Isaiah and Psalms, they know their Isaiah, mostly because he explains everything to them. Mm-hmm. So here comes this guy on a donkey, and they recognize him probably from Isaiah, mm-hmm. and they start singing and shouting out messianic language, hell of Hosanna, son of David, mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff, very messianic. And they're throwing palm branches on the road, and they're taking off their garments and throwing those on the road. 
Now, if I'm reading this motif backwards, I'm thinking they know Isaiah said that this guy coming here is going to provide you with the garment. Ah. And they're making a statement. We know you're the one. So do they seem to understand this motif to some degree? I think they do. Yeah. Yeah. To some degree. Yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. They certainly pick up what Isaiah's laying down and they know about Yom Kippur. They're very they're very into these things, and that's why they're looking for the Messiah so mm-hmm. hard. And they know what to look for because they're picking up these motifs. So then, of course, we have all this. This is like Holy Week is like a what not to wear type mm-hmm. of episode or something, or say yes to the dress or something. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so we Can have- we quote you on that? That Holy Week is like say, yeah. say yes to the dress. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> I'm in enough trouble the way it is. Who cares? Um, so you get uh, Jesus taking off his outer garment to mm-hmm. wash the disciples' feet. Okay, yeah. You get the the young man who runs away naked, living behind his white linen garment in the garden. Mm-hmm. You get the uh, before Pilate, they're stripping him of his robe or his garment and putting on that purple robe and mocking him and everything else, then redressing him, mm-hmm. just one thing after another. And of course, at the cross, there's a big deal. The garment, they don't, you know, they're not going to cut it into chunks, you know, to pay the soldiers because there's it's a beautiful white linen garment without woven without seams, so they cast lots for it, as mm-hmm. it says they will in the psalm, and then maybe it's Jeremiah too. Hmm. Anyway, a couple places. So this garment is a white linen garment, Christ garment. So, But the most beautiful thing now is, the most horrendously beautiful thing is that Christ is hanging naked on the cross. Mm-hmm. He has been stripped of his garment. Notice the reversal. Mm-hmm. It's a hiding you see him bloody, naked, and you see your sin. Because the one who knew no sin became sin, our sin. So now all the sin is uncovered. Mm. And of course, by his holy precious blood, the lamb is slain, the blood flows, people are cleansed, and they are clothed in robes of righteousness and garments of salvation. Mm. That's your Reversal. Reversal, yeah. Now, there's a few other spots, but let's jump to Revelation. You have all these people gathered around the throne, all the saints, and they're dressed in white linen garments, Mm -hmm. everyone. Uh, Who are these? Lord, you know. These are those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and made them white. Lamb, blood, white linen garment atonement, covering. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like it says this. I mean, there's three different white linen garment references in Revelation for mm-hmm. all the saints. And you asked this question earlier. Good question, Grasshopper. This is... Thank you, Sensei. Yeah. <laughs> so we have in the liturgy, white linen garments are really big in this little thing we do called baptism. Mm-hmm. And why do they wear white? They wear white because that's their new kingdom garment, heavenly garment. Mm-hmm. But even more so than that, and that's pretty big, right? Even bigger is the funeral pall. Mm-hmm. Funeral pall is always white. 
because that's the garment. It symbolizes the garment there that saint is now wearing in the courts of everlasting life with mm-hmm. all the saints. It's white linen garment. Mm-hmm. See, the church knows about these things. They just haven't talked about them as much as they could. Yeah. And I've past. got a, a couple questions. One thing that stands out to me, though, is just the way, you know, you kind of led off with the commentary that you read that was not Lutheran, right? Yes. And it yeah, was just, yeah. an, I don't know what background it was from, but them explaining, you know, well, the, the weather might tear down the fig. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, that's why that an animal was sacrificed sure. and other coverings were given to Adam mm-hmm. and Eve, right? So that's one way of looking at scripture. It's like, well, there's some kind of probably real practical reason why that this is included, you know, sure. with, with, with the entire story of the fall and the very few sentences they take to cover it. One factor they wanted you to know was that rough weather is ahead. Right? Yeah. So that's one yeah. way to look through the scripture. The other way, the way you're painting it, of course, you're starting with Christ, mm-hmm. right? Which is as Christians, that's how we approach the Old Testament, right? We don't say, let's start fresh with Genesis 1 and figure out where things go. We've we've been given that key or that answer. But as you're going through all of those, you're looking for deep elements that are weaving these things mm-hmm. through, like yes. it's one author that is that is conducting this entire thing, which you see when all great authors write great books, exactly. right? I mean, Lord yeah. of the Rings is one of my favorites. I'm reading mm-hmm. the Wheel of Time series now. Just any kind of good fiction, there's all these little clues because they know where the story's going. Exactly. And you're yes. reading the Old Testament in this way and with these cues. And I mean, you just tied all these stories that someone might listen to one of those stories and be like, what's what's going on with Tamar, mm-hmm. right? Why, why is this included? Yeah. Um, yeah. And when you do that, you're saying, oh, this actually, it fits into an ongoing narrative, an ongoing theme of what humanity does, how God reacts, mm-hmm. and all of these different aspects. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's like uh, you can read scripture like it's a snake river, a mile wide and an inch deep. Mm-hmm. Or you can read scripture and see the depths and let's face it, if God is the author and we believe that he is through inspiration, right, he might actually know how to write. Mm-hmm. He might should get the same credit as a Shakespeare or a Tolkien or a whatever. Go figure, right? Go figure. Yeah. I'll bet he knows how to do stuff like that. Yeah. But we do tend to not think about that sometimes. Yeah. Where do you think that is? So that, um, like that I like that example you gave of that modern commentator, right? Or maybe the, the way to look at it a mile wide and, you know, an inch deep. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing that in your studies and certainly in your doctoral studies, you included some of this, mm-hmm. if I remember right, even in your thesis, the couple of questions, the Israelites that are living at Christ's time, the early church, right? So both like the rabbis before Christ, the early mm-hmm. church afterwards, maybe even go to the medieval times. You were talking about Luther, you know, in the 16th century. Are they reading the scripture in the way that you're talking about reading the scripture? Uh, Luther is, and most of the early church fathers are. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a tricky question when you ask about Jews, mm-hmm. because we have rabbinic Judaism, which is a whole different thing than the Hebrews. Okay. Because rabbinic Judaism comes out of the uh, Babylonian captivity. It begins to develop because basically rabbis are the Pharisees. Okay. And they become very, not not originally, but by the time we get to Jesus, they have adopted a very moralistic, legalistic reading of the text. Mm -hmm. Oddly enough, that's what... uh, 
Calvin didn't know Hebrew very well, so he accessed the text of the Old Testament through the rabbis. Oh, interesting. Which is, I think, one of the reasons he ends up having a little bit more legalistic view of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Now, he wasn't terrible, but his followers got worse. You know, I mean, just kind of how these things go. Mm -hmm. Luther, on the other hand, is a Hebrew scholar first and foremost, so he's accessing the text of the Old Testament through the original language, the Hebrew, the Masoretic text. Mm -hmm. So as a result, he's seeing things that Calvin doesn't have the um, uh, the luxury of seeing. Mm -hmm. And Calvin complains about Luther seeing too much Jesus in the Old Testament. Mm. He said, we're really worried about Luther. He sees Jesus behind every rock and under every bush. You know, that's Calvin talking. Mm. And uh, that concerns him. Mm -hmm. He... Now, it doesn't mean Calvin doesn't see Jesus in the Old Testament. He understands the Messianic promises. He talks about, he's the one who uses the line, Jesus is a golden thread weaving its way through the Old Testament. Hmm. Frequently gets attributed to Luther, but it was Calvin who said it. Okay. And what he's saying is these Messianic promises, the direct, specific Messianic promises, that's where you see Jesus. Well, he's right, you see Jesus there. But, but he not stops just there. there not okay. just there. There's more to it. There's there's some deeper meaning level, deeper level, deeper level meanings mm -hmm. going on here, and that's um, motifs. I mean, Luther would never never called it a motif or anything, but he he read it like this. You can tell by how he reads it backwards and mm -hmm. says these various things like that. What would be a good word moving forward to describe? what maybe Calvin's doing there? Would it be um, like, a, like a linear re, re, reading of where he's only seeing Christ where there's there's mm -hmm. an over-prophecy? Is that right? Well, he's, yeah. He's always said to be, uh, to view the Old Testament in a theocentric way. Okay. Whereas Luther's uh, credited with seeing the Old Testament as Christocentric. Okay. So Luther's starting with Christ and with the, mm -hmm. with the gospel stories. And right. that's kind of the, that's the what's giving mm -hmm. birth to everything that's going on. Yeah. He's mm -hmm. just seeing Calvin is just seeing a sovereign God at work through yeah, events. That's where we get the focus on the sovereignty of God. Okay, and by I mean, which kind of takes away from the whole takes away covers up maybe I don't want to say take away, but covers up a lot of the messianic uh, undertones. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just and that's just the because he was uh, in a sense handicapped in his. Approach the scriptures. Why we learn the original languages as pastors, right? Mm -hmm. Missouri Senate, so we don't have to fall into those traps. Well, so and so said this about the text. What does the text say? Mm -hmm. Well, so and so said that. Yeah. Well, can you really trust so and so, or maybe so and so has an agenda or something? Mm -hmm. Whereas a pastor, you can go and look at the text and see what the text says, mm -hmm. not what somebody said about the text. Mm -hmm. You can do both, but I mean, it does very, it's very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Does that trend with Calvin then? Does that kind, how do we end up where we are today? Would you say that in most of, let's just take American Christendom, that's going to be most mm -hmm. of our audience, in American Christendom, is there more of a sense of this kind of reading where you're looking for Christ behind every rock? You're kind of looking for things like these motifs you're talking about, mm -hmm. um, this um, kind of revealing uh, that everything's there in the Old Testament already. 
Or is there more of kind of that Calvinistic understanding where it's like these are Old Testament stories and Christ shows up here or there where there's like a prophecy, God's at work, surely. Which Where's American Christianity at on that spectrum? Both and, um, because Calvinism, of course, morphs to, you know, it just gets further apart from Lutheran, if you will. We'll mm-hmm. just use that word. Um because the disciples always take it another step, mm-hmm. in this case, further away from the flagpole. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have that aspect where probably uh, more Zwinglian okay. reformed that way. Uh, really, the truth is, and this is a very volatile thing, so I'll say it to build your viewership. Okay. You know, they're, you know, for all the heretic hunters. Yes. But the reality is that most Lutherans, when they read the Old Testament, they suddenly become Calvinists. Hmm. They take on this type of, of yeah. reading. Yeah. Uh, they read the New Testament. Weirdly, they don't do that. Mm-hmm. But in the Old Testament, well, you know, because they're a little intimidated by everything that's going on. How's it all fit? There's a lot of material, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And they've probably been taught via Sunday school lessons and things like that. We just take a story out of its context, story out of its context, you know, and there you go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are those are Bible studies that deal with all of the what famous women in the Bible or all of the this, all of that. You know, we it's all fine, but unless you properly uh, read it. Christologically, mm-hmm. you're going to miss out on a lot. Yeah, and so there is a trend, or has been since. Oh, I think I would be safe in saying it got pretty big in the '80s. Mm-hmm. Um, comes out of a guy like uh, one of the main proponents, kind of the father of some of this is Brevard Childs, and then his disciples, of course, his his doctoral students took a little further. But a narrative reading of scripture. Okay. It reads scripture as one continuous narrative, Genesis to Revelations, one story. They don't fracture it or split it up as much. Mm-hmm. And that's that's fair. Sometimes they use the language of grand narrative. Mm-hmm. I call it um, a unified theological narrative. Okay. The difference here is that these uh, groups from the 80s on really were we're talking about the narrative. They agree the narrative is unified. Mm-hmm. They would not necessarily all agree that it was unified in theology, but the narrative itself. Whereas I would argue that the theology does not change either. It's unified, one theology, one narrative, mm-hmm. I think. Probably more Lutheran of me. But, mm-hmm. you know, so that that isn't necessarily a component with all of them. There's... They basically might read it and say, well, this is a story. It does contradict itself, although, you know, theologically. I'm not really, I don't really believe that. I don't think it does. Mm-hmm. But you have to, you know, figure it out. Yeah. So, so anyway, you have that trend. The sad trend, I think, that's we're in the midst of right now. I mean, that was a very positive move. Mm-hmm. Well, now we seem to be sliding even further in the newest trend, and maybe it's not even the newest anymore, but this idea of a postmodern reading okay. of the, the Old Testament. And that becomes very wishy-washy. Uh, you've heard the phrase, that's your truth, this is my truth. Mm-hmm. They're both valid. 
even yeah. though they're totally contradictory. Well, you know, that can't quite work that way, but postmodernism deals with that. So they read scripture, say, this is my, I, I think it means this. Well, I think it means this. Yes, we're both right, hmm. even though they're totally contrary to one another, because it's what it means to me. Mm-hmm. That's kind of where we're sliding into. And that's, I mean, it's always been around. Yeah. So the stories have a purpose within this biblical narrative mm-hmm. um, and this theology that's being revealed, right, as, yep, as you're going absolutely. through, and it's all unified. Mm-hmm. But if you take that kind of approach, you take the story of, you know, Joseph and Potiphar's wife, you know, or maybe you don't want to drill into that one, but you've got that story of the the uh, the cloak there, mm-hmm. and you're saying – this fits in theologically. This fits in narratively with all of these things that we've we've read before that we're going to read after. It's going to prepare for the coming mm-hmm. of Christ. And then you're saying this postmodern one is like, I take this and I say, well, here's what this means in my life. And I apply it to some kind right. of work relationship or something like mm-hmm. that. And someone else says, well, this applies to me and, you know, sure. this situation I have, da, 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 da. And we go, good for you. Good for you. Yep. And that's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's two things going on there. You know, the rabbis take Potiphar's wife incident and because joseph resisted mm-hmm. they they polish it up a little bit and then they use joseph as a moral ethical character encouraging people not to fall into sexual temptations mm-hmm. well fine but that's really not the deeper meaning of that and but they that and so basically that's the moral to the story is mm-hmm. Resist temptation and God will bless you. Yeah. Okay. So you're saying that's mm-hmm. that 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 stops you short. Like, is that a good lesson to learn in general? Yeah, yes. sure. It's a good is, lesson, but it's it not that the big point away? of right. the story of the account here. Mm-hmm. That's not the big point, mm-hmm. you know. But when you read it in little micro little chunks, you I don't know what else you can do. You fall into that trap. Mm-hmm. So, which leads to something that. A gentleman I have spent some time with online named Chris Rosenborough, Christian yeah. Pirate Radio. Yeah. He, uh, I believe, I think he coined the phrase uh, narcissistic eisegesis. Okay. It's been shortened to narcissus. Okay. It's got a ring to it. It got a ring to mm-hmm. it. And it's brilliant, really, because, you know, one reason we don't see Jesus in the Old Testament is because we keep getting in the way. Ah, uh, Yeah. So let's take David and Goliath. I was just going to ask about David and Goliath. Yeah. Yeah. What's the well, point? If you if you trust God, you can slay all the giants in your life. Mm-hmm. What's the problem? Story's not about. It's not about that Brian at all. Stecker. And you know why it screws up? Because when you go to a movie, so you go to your, uh, you go to the Hobbit or one of your. Tolkien guy, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> so you're going to you're going to resonate. You're going to while you're there, you're going to take the place of a character. Mm-hmm. Just people do that, right? Mm-hmm. I do it all the time. Which did you? Are you? Uh, you must have taken the place of an orc. That's. <laughs> yeah, my wife might agree with yeah, that. Yeah. Well, I'm not asking about your <laughs> wife here now. No, it's, the thing is, you always take the place of the hero, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because you you resonate with that, yeah. so you read David and Goliath, you put yourself in the place of David. Mm-hmm. Now the story does have you're in the story, mm-hmm. but you're not David. Mm-hmm. Jesus is David. 
Yeah. He's the Christ figure. You're one of the Israelites gathered around the field wetting their pants every time Goliath steps on the field. Mm -hmm. You think you're going to die, and you know you can't whoop that guy. Yeah. But your champion comes on the field named Jesus, in this case David, foreshadowing Jesus. And if you put yourself in his place, you don't see Jesus. Mm -hmm. We do that with a lot of things. You yeah. know? Um, what's the main focus of the Joseph narratives? Forgive your brothers like Joseph forgave his, and you will do really well, and things will work out good for you. Mm -hmm. No. You put yourself in the wrong in the place of Joseph, you should be, you're the brothers. Mm -hmm. You're the one who throws the Christ into the pit with your sin. You're the one who does all of this, and yet he forgives you. And he, actually, in the case of Joseph, he clothes his brothers, by mm. the way. He clothes them? Yeah. Yeah. He gives them gifts of clothes, mm. of robes. Mm. Weird, huh? The ones who stripped him of his robe, he gives robes. Mm -hmm. Jesus was stripped of the cross to clothe us, garments of salvation, robes of righteousness. Mm -hmm. Weird. I'm sure it means nothing. Yeah, once again, it's the depth of of what God's revealing, right? Mm -hmm. I always like the, someone put it this way, but he said, Christianity is a public religion. And what that means is over again, something like Mormonism, where mm -hmm. you've got, you know, Smith kind of getting secret messages, and you kind of have to trust that those messages were received secretly. In the Bible, you've got... These things, you know, written over the course of what fifteen hundred years, eighteen hundred yeah, years, sure, maybe maybe even a little bit longer. In the case of the well, Old Testament, about fifteen hundred. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you've got it written out over this time. We know that we've got Genesis over here and Exodus over here, and then you've got you know Isaiah is going to be written here and the story of David mm -hmm. here, and then you get to the the Gospels, and in a very short time it brings together all of these these truths that have been weaved throughout, right? So mm -hmm. as you're talking about, okay, now you've got Joseph clothing his brothers, you've already built up this motif, you know, and then you're, you're plugging it into Christ. It's that's beautifully cohesive. You mm -hmm. can't you, you can't make something like that up. Right. Right. Built over the course of not over this. that course of time. I don't think that I just think it's impossible unless the hand of God is at work here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it just solidifies your confidence in scripture, your understanding of God's revealed truth versus your story of David, mm -hmm. you know, where it's it's just one more example. And it's probably not even that potent of an example of like having courage. Like, sure. I don't know, Tolkien probably did a better job than than the Bible if that's the whole point of the story sure. of David and Goliath. Like, C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Although he's very big on uh, much more, uh, what's the word? I mean, Lewis. The myth is, made fact. Yeah, or? he's very good at that sort of thing. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that at some point. You got to so. ask yourself, Aslan, mm -hmm. is that you? Of course not. Mm -hmm. It's pretty clear it's not you. Yeah. Well, I think it's clear. Mm -hmm. I mean, you may have issues. I mean, I don't know if you have a complex or anything, but as a student, you didn't. So I'm assuming you haven't developed Haven't one. picked it up. No. Parrish does yeah. a good job of keeping you away from that, mm -hmm. or it should. <laughs> <laughs> Quite humbling. Yeah. yeah. That's the beauty of it. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, we, I think Lewis is much more, at least in his like chronicles, you know, Narnia and all, much more spe specific without being specific. But it's harder to miss these things. Mm -hmm. Now, his other things like The Great Divorce, other writings of his, it gets a little 
more complicated to sort it out, which I think is on purpose. I think mm -hmm. Chronicles of Narnia really are a children's book. Yeah. So he's making sure the kids pick up what he's laying down. Yeah. The adults, yeah, we'll see. Well, as you mentioned, the great divorce is kind of interesting because all of the people that you follow, because the great divorce goes through all these different stories of people, you know, they're kind of on the, they're on the gates of heaven and they're all choosing reasons why they don't want to go why to heaven. They, they want to go, go back to hell. Yeah. And that's one where he is inviting you in to take the role of all of these yep. individuals that choose something rather than God, you know, back to your idolatry or adultery. They and None of them are heroic. None of them are heroic, are they? Yeah. Yeah. And even the main character who's Lewis at the end. Yeah. He, uh. He's kind of. Kind of, sort of, not heroic either. He just can't make up his mind. Yeah. And really, you know, you don't have to be heroic because mm -hmm. you're not really heroic. Yeah. Um, some of those characters felt pretty heroic in rejecting. Mm -hmm. You know, it seems to me that they kind of felt that they were not just justifying what they did, but pretty obvious they made the right choice. You yeah. Know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, There's so. a big man who keeps going, I've got my rights. And, I've got, yeah. You know, a, <laughs> man's yeah. got to have his rights. Yep. Yeah. 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 It's a good one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, I think if we learn to read the Old Testament in such a manner, we're going to, well, first of all, we're going to appreciate it more. Mm -hmm. You'll be able to preach it better. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a pastor and... I, I really think the appreciation and, and the strengthening of our faith as we see, as you mentioned, look how this is laid out, mm -hmm. cannot be accidental. Mm -hmm. This is not a loose collection of books and uh, writings that eh, are sort of related, but not necessarily all that related, or they don't have to be. Mm -hmm. No, they have to be. Yeah. Because it's a unified story narrative for yeah. sure yeah let's do job that uh, took a class with you when you taught about job yeah it's probably the first time i taught it and i didn't know anything about it well i've learned some things you i thought you knew something about it so i've well good that worked I've, i fooled you i've taught That's whatever you taught <laughs> i'm pretty happy with that okay and daniel Broadus sitting right next to me oh hey mr smart guy yeah yeah that always mm -hmm. makes for a class yeah oh yeah yeah a deep thinker, that guy. Yeah. yeah. He was on he was on the show. We spent like an hour going through um the Ballad of the White Horse oh. by Chesterton. By Chesterton, yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. It was that's, fun. He loves I'm, that. Yeah. I, that would be good. I yeah. like that. It was yeah. quintessential Daniel Brodus. Oh yeah. Oh I I enjoy visiting with him. He's yeah. He's quite the guy. Yeah. yeah. Love it. Yeah. So Job. What's going on at the beginning? Why well, is Satan uh, in the presence just, of God? Well, okay. Let's answer this question first since okay. this is the Christian bookstore. Everybody goes to Job to discover the answer to the problem of suffering. Mm. Correct? Mm -hmm. Well, not, maybe not everybody, but I'd say a great vast majority. Mm -hmm. The problem with suffering is that it's not a problem. Suffering is not a problem. This is a Western concept that the best thing you can do in life is get rid of all your suffering. Mm -hmm. That's our goal in life, whether it's medical or emotional. So we look at suffering as being evil, and it's not. Mm -hmm. Suffering is not evil. 
Pleasant? No. Evil? No. So you have to remember that when you approach Job. In fact, this is, sounds really crazy, but suffering comes from God mm-hmm. because God's in charge, which is demonstrated by Job hands down. Mm-hmm. When Satan, or Hasatan, comes into the presence of God, he has to get permission to do anything. He can't touch Job without permission. Now, God gives him permission, which is like sort of like a sucker's bet. Mm-hmm. Um, but Satan can't help himself. He's got to take the bait. He's got to try. Mm-hmm. So he goes on the attack. Can't kill him. I think God controls this all the way. But God gives him permission. I think that's important to remember theologically that uh, – Satan and God are not equal here mm-hmm. or anywhere. This is not the yin and the yang, the balance of good and evil. Mm-hmm. No, God is good. He's in charge. And Satan ends up doing God's work mm-hmm. because God controls him. So God gives him permission. The suffering ensues. Everybody knows about that. That's not good. It's hard. Mm-hmm. you got your friends who are being less than friendly you know, not helping you out, trying to teach you retribution theology. You know, good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Job, these are bad things. What did you do? Mm-hmm. And, of course, Job eventually kind of breaks down into some of this. But because Job is um, a child of God, eventually God says, Job, get up on your feet, gird your loins. You want to ask me questions? I've got some questions to ask you. Mm-hmm. Of course, when people, when God starts asking you questions, you should be a little nervous. And uh, he asks them things like, oh, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Where do I store the snow? Mm-hmm. How does the eagle fly up there? Surely you know, Job, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, Job keeps getting probably lower and lower till he's flat on the ground and he says, I have spoken of things I know nothing of. Mm-hmm. Please forgive me. God says, yeah, okay, I forgive you, and I'll give you everything back, double or whatever, double. Mm-hmm. And uh, then he says, which is a very interesting and odd thing, he says, and you better offer sacrifices for your friends if they're as good as dead. Hmm. And so these are how, the friends that have been dialoguing yeah, about the narrative. The three, mm-hmm. three main friends. Now, you have to ask yourself the tough question. How can Job get away with this? And his friends, they're both all saying pretty much the same thing by this, by the end. And how come his friends can't? Relationship. See, mm-hmm. I did that. I brought that back around. That was, good. that was good. Yeah. <laughs> because Job is a child of God. He is a covenantal believer. Mm. And his friends don't have Hebrew names, which begs the question if they are in the covenant. Mm. And people who are not in the covenant, unbelievers can't talk to God and say things that believers can get away with because we have that relationship. Mm. So because we're in a relationship with God, we have the right to lament, as in like the Psalms of Lament, Jeremiah. We have the right to 
question God. We have, you know, because we believe in him, you don't question somebody you don't believe in. Mm -hmm. We have the right to even get angry, shake our fists at God. Even if we're wrong, we have the right to do that because we're in the relationship. Mm -hmm. My guess is if your wife is anything like my wife, she talks to me in ways that nobody else is allowed to talk to me. Mm -hmm. And probably vice versa because we're in the relationship. Mm -hmm. There's a different kind of dynamic, a different freedom there. And it actually, in some ways, can strengthen a relationship, which is God's purpose in all of this. So it's God using the suffering in order to strengthen the relationship, and hence you why bet. the suffering is not evil. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Never has been. Mm -hmm. So if you want to look at the story of Joel, just on the level of suffering, you can honestly say, and this, I believe this absolutely, all suffering, all of your suffering, all of my suffering, all of anybody's suffering only has meaning in the suffering of Christ. Hmm. So what does, Joe, what does God do to Satan with Jesus? He gets Satan to do his dirty work for him and crucify his son, and as a result, he loses. Hmm. Satan destroys, in a sense, himself. Hmm. because God cons him into this bargain. And Satan thinks he's winning, and he's not. So in Job, Job's relationship with God is strengthened through his suffering. Yep. Through the whole process. Absolutely. And then we see a, uh, what would be the right word? We see at least a, is it is it a type of what we see when we see Satan with behind Christ? the crucifixion of Christ? Oh, absolutely. And yeah, yet, I think you could call it a type. Okay. Sure. Sure. Very similar thing going on here. Christ undergoes great suffering, even to the point of death. And by dying, he destroys death. Mm -hmm. And he overcomes Satan. Yeah. And Satan, who cannot help, but God uses him as his instrument because mm -hmm. God is in control. I think, what you're, I think what you're saying is good. I think it's tough for people to grasp that. But I, I think I've certainly... Well, I've certainly witnessed it that you know people who have suffered, you mm -hmm. know, whether it's health suffering, so they've lost loved ones and they've made it through. But people who have been through that suffering process, they at some point become immovable. Like yes. they're just they're rooted in faith, they're rooted in um, good, true, and beautiful things. And then you can see those who maybe have on the surface kind of been you know blessed and blessed and blessed, and they have nothing but good things, and but at the end. They're very immovable. They're much more mm -hmm. emotive. They're much more a leaf in the wind. doesn't mean they don't have faith, but at the end, you want to be the person who's been through that suffering sure. process. You're stronger. Yeah. Even if you don't right. want to go through it, you want to be on the other right. end. Right. Well, this is how God disciplines and strengthens us in our faith. He tries us with fire, mm -hmm. purifies us, all these things, all New Testament language, right? So um, certainly true. That's how God operates. He disciplines those whom he loves. All of that, suffering can be and is part of that, I'm convinced. So how would you tell people who are listening to, uh, you could look at it two, one of two ways. One, how do they face their suffering, but how do they also maybe speak to people who are going through suffering and kind of deliver this message or mm -hmm. manage this biblical message that suffering might actually be good for this person? It is coming from God. It's not in spite of God. Mm -hmm. And how do they take that role of being there for that person? Yeah, I think um, as a pastor, I know I've talk to people in the midst of 
some pretty bad things, you know, over the course of time you do. And I try to help them contemplate what is the purpose of this suffering. Mm-hmm. Everything has a purpose. What is the purpose that you're – what is going on here? What is God accomplishing here? I'm not I'm not underplaying the fact that this is terrible. Mm-hmm. Suffering hurts. This is real, uh, agonizing. The question is, though, what is God doing? And, and to try to walk them through that, work with them on that. I mean, you're only guessing sometimes. We know he's strengthening your faith. What is he strengthening it for? Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of thing. You know, trying to take your mind off the fact that you're just the suffering as if it's pointless. That just this makes no sense. Uh, I don't get it, all that kind of language, which, of course, is normal to say. And focus mm-hmm. on what is God doing here? Mm-hmm. Acknowledging that it is God doing something. Mm-hmm. I think that's good. Um, otherwise, you know, you can get really that kind of that downward spiral uh, of just letting the suffering just it just overcomes you because you'll understand that it has some sort of purpose. That's right. Like so, um, Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, when he goes about answering the problem of suffering, he uh, he does it more so than I. You know, I've read the problem of pain, and that's mm. kind of been my go-to. It's kind of C.S. Lewis's approach. Uh, naturally, I've always loved C.S. Lewis, but I think Aquinas does a much better job, and he takes a very much Job approach, mm-hmm. and he basically says you have to. Suffering is really suffering in a in a negative way when you can't see beyond your suffering. So to your mm-hmm. point, that downward spiral where it's just you can't get beyond saying. What, what was me? I can't believe what I've lost. You know, this hurts. That's when it's really tough. But if you can just zoom out and start to see a bigger mm-hmm. picture at play, your suffering becomes small, right? And that's kind of what happens in Job. God's, right? It, look it, at it Leviathan. Does. Look yeah. at, you know, Behemoth. Like, look at all of this. Like, your suffering is yep. actually not all encompassing. It's a small right. part of a larger picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. It's also good, at least I think it is, to not only point to them and say, okay, your suffering has meaning in Christ's suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's purpose, but you see, that, but also this reality of, again, relationship, God suffers with you. Mm-hmm. You're not suffering alone. God suffers with you. And so you have to, because I always use examples, my poor wife, you know, but when she has a surgery, I tell you, it's terrible. I suffer with her. I'm not feeling that pain, but I feel the pain of being helpless to solve any problems mm-hmm. or alleviate her suffering. It, it it hurts. It literally hurts. Because And God's the same way with us. He goes through our suffering with us. He suffers with us. Mm-hmm. And I think that's extremely important for people to understand that you're not in this alone. Now, you can always say, well, I'm suffering with you too as a church and all that. But I think it's, I mean, that's true. But I think it's more helpful for them to understand that Christ suffers with them mm-hmm. or that God suffers with them because you're the bride. Yeah. And so when the bride suffers, the bridegroom suffers. And I think I remember you teaching. It's all coming back to me now. <laughs> I can teach. I can remember you saying There's this hope. and Brody's huh. commenting on it. Yeah. But, uh, I can remember you saying the one good thing that the friends do 
is what they do at first, right? Which is where they show up, they keep their mouths shut, but they're just they're seven just days there. Yeah. yeah, seven days with them in presence, and that that was the best thing they did. Mm-hmm. All right, and that's a very common practice in that area of the country. Mm-hmm. You know, on the eastern, you know, the, you don't have to open your mouth. You, it's really being there is very important. Mm-hmm. It's a support. It's a sharing. Yeah, all of that. And almost an acknowledging that you're going through this terrible thing. We're here to go through it with you. Mm-hmm. When they open their mouth, then they lose their – they kind of obviously go down the tube. But really, that is – you're right. That's the best thing they do. They show up, they're present, and they keep their mouth shut for a while. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Notice, just to cement this in a little bit, Job's friends don't have Hebrew names – but you remember there's another guy, the young guy, was it Elihu? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Notice that he doesn't get mentioned at the end. He's not, and he says the same things. He's a little maybe closer to the to the right thing than the friends, but he's mm-hmm. still wrong. So why don't why doesn't Job have to sacrifice for Elihu? Mm. Well, Elihu is a Hebrew name. Mm. He's in the covenant. He also has a certain right to be wrong, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I mean to, you know, that, and all of that. Just as we do, I mean, you know, people get so caught up in this idea that I have to, I can't pray to God because I don't know the perfect way to pray. That has nothing to do with anything. You're not going to be perfect no matter what. Just pray. Mm-hmm. What if I? What if I ask for something that's wrong? Guess what? Who do you think's in control here? Not you. God, mm-hmm. he'll take care of it. You do not need to worry. Just be faithful. Pray. Trust. You know, that's Because, you know, that's called faith. Mm-hmm. It's an important aspect of faith. Can you comment on, since you kind of used the word there, this one's stuck with me, and I've taught this a couple of times, so I hope, I hope this is accurate. <laughs> I, hope, I hope you still uh, teach this, but you talked about the difference between faithful and perfect. Oh, for yes. Israel. Do yeah. you want to comment on that? Yeah, I think going back, we started kind of part of the discussion where we talked about that the most important thing is a relationship. Mm-hmm. Sin is a secondary problem. Mm-hmm. It's a problem, but it's a problem because it affects a relationship. The relationship is the number one thing. Now, if you flip those, then you have to be perfect. Mm. Okay. Don't sin. Solve all your problems. Doesn't work so well, but yeah. And that's kind of a reformed understanding of the Old Testament. Hmm. And that's it's really wrong. The point is relationship. So sin affects your relationship, and you're always going to have this struggle. But the uh, the difference is we can be faithful. Mm-hmm. So we're called upon to be faithful in the relationship. Not to be perfect, but to be faithful. Mm-hmm. Being perfect, be great. How's that working for you, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I use the example again, my wife, mm-hmm. right? So, am I perfect in my relationship with my wife? No. I may as well be honest. She'll probably hear this, and I'll probably have to explain. No, I'm not. I screw up all the time. Mm-hmm. Am I faithful? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that's our relationship with the bridegroom. Mm-hmm. 
we are faithful. We're able to walk by faith. Yeah. But we're not perfect. Yeah. And that's an important distinction. So the relationship becomes the most important and faithfulness is, well, it's possible. Mm -hmm. Being faithful, you can do. Yeah. How is a Christian faithful in their relationship with God? Following his commands, sure. Mm -hmm. But wanting to walk in his paths, imperfectly, sure, we sin. Mm -hmm. But we can still be believe. It does. Every time you sin, you don't fall out of belief. Yeah. You're still a believer. You're still faithful, mm -hmm. faithful child of God. Your baptism doesn't have to be repeated every Sunday because you sinned that week. Mm. You know, you're you're in the relationship. Mm -hmm. You are a faithful child of God. You screw up a lot. We have confession absolution for that. But we don't have to be rebaptized mm -hmm. because we're still a child of God. Mm -hmm. The baptism will hold. You know. Yeah. So you know that's. Kind of I, some some of the ways in which you can talk about it, I think. Yeah, you're kind of hitting towards. I had someone call me the other day, and they asked the question, and it's one of the I don't like. I don't like this whole topic, so I'm hoping you like it, and you can just explain it, and then I'll hmm. just I'll just send them this clip moving forward. <laughs> oh yeah, okay. So right, it was yeah. uh, they were struggling with the free will, the whole free will discussion, mm -hmm. right? Like, do we have free will? Um, wondering about some more of the Calvinistic things that they were hearing, right? Meaning more like double predestination, all right. of this kind of stuff. Right. It seems like you're gesturing towards maybe an answer to this when you're talking about the inability to be perfect, but the inability to operate in a faithful manner. Right. Um, would this tie into maybe some well, of the difference here? How, certainly. Yeah. Certainly. I mean, you know, we talked about, first of all, we misunderstand the will of God mm -hmm. to begin with. And so the will of God to us is like a line that you have to tightrope, you have to walk, and if you fall off one side or the other, well, it sucks to be you. But that's an okay word, isn't it? Yep. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, however, the will of God is more like a path mm -hmm. uh, from the standpoint of the Hebrews anyway, and rightly so, I think, and things happen on the path, and they can move around, but and still be on the path of God's will. Our will, we want it to conform to Christ's will, absolutely. But that doesn't mean it's like on a tightrope and every time you slip, you fall. I think that's over. And so, you know, this whole, I don't know, it's so hard to, to talk about this double predestination stuff. That's called a human concept forced upon a biblical reality. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it screws it up. On many levels, for that matter, you know, practical and theological. So, you know, we, God, God's will, his ultimate will is that all men might be saved. That's in the Bible. If that's his ultimate will, then there's no way you can have double predestination, is there? Hmm. Can't will somebody to be this and will these people to go to hell. You can't predestine these guys and predestine these guys the other way because your ultimate will is that all men might be safe. Mm -hmm. So there's no way that double predestination is anywhere close to being biblical. Mm -hmm. It's just a human concept or construct that, you know, makes me feel smart or makes me feel better or get, makes me realize I don't have to do evangelism calls or something, you know, yeah, whatever yeah. it is. I mean, it's already, it's already, it's fatalistic. 
Yeah. Yeah. Very mm-hmm. fatalistic. Uh, that's not how God operates. Because mm-hmm. that would be against his ultimate will. Yeah. So otherwise his will, we pray for God to change his mind and all the time. Sunday morning, probably pray for Grandma Schmidt with the gout. And she <laughs> feels better, right? That's right. Yeah. Well, you just ask God to change his mind because the suffering of the gout came from God. Oh, mm-hmm. God, could you stop doing that? Could you change? And he might say yes mm-hmm. because he gets it. See, part of this problem is our is our uh, our culture, TV, all these different sitcoms over the years. You know, Back to the Future. There's one that's old with uh, uh, Fox, Michael Fox, and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, all these. I can go back. If I could get a time machine and go back, I could change things. Mm-hmm. Or I'd be afraid I might do something that would change something. Yeah, yeah. You really think you're in charge? Right. I thought God was in charge. He's in charge of history. He's in charge of everything. That's a, this idea that, oh, I was uh, walking on the beach and a newspaper was washed up on the shore and it was for 20 years in the future – or, or you know, five days in the future. So I went out and saved these people's lives who were going to be killed in this fire. Um, became a multi-billionaire because I invested properly in the stock market. All these sort of things mm-hmm. that are all part of this. But you have one sitcom after another about like that. Yeah. And that's not how it works. God's in charge. God is in control. God is the one doing the doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you you don't have that kind of power. Yeah. And it go, and we see it too in what some Eastern religions, you know, the butterfly flaps its wings in Singapore, it causes a typhoon in Japan. Mm-hmm. It's the assumption that everything is kind of random chance, right? Sure, and that would negate the need for God, mm-hmm. or that God isn't in control. Yeah, you know that, and that's that's just it's not true. But we've been in inundated with all of that stuff. And so we've kind of adopted it as a truth. Mm-hmm. And it's not even close. What do you think is one of the biggest dan- like dangerous ideas that has entered the church today that people here in America might be influenced by and think that's Christian, but really it's not? Hmm. I think for Americans, and again, this sounds trite and old, School for Americans, though, I do believe our biggest problem is self sufficiency. Hmm. I can do anything, I can pull myself up my own bootstraps. Basically, you don't need God, and we never get over that. Hmm. It seems like we just have another a reiteration of it every so often. Mm-hmm. But we, it's always, I can do these things, I don't need God to save me, I can save myself, you know, these. This is where it goes. And I think that basically is uh, self-sufficiency. American culture really pushes that. Independent, you know. Uh, got also, I mean, we have political ideas like that. We have, you know, the rugged individualist, mm-hmm. all these things, all part of the same thing, you know, just different eras. Mm-hmm. I, I really think it's just a, the reason I think it's so dangerous is just it never goes away. Mm-hmm. And we suck it up. So what? What do you go to the Christian bookstore? It's a self help section. That's yep. all it is. 
you know, 12 steps to a better you or live your best life now or et cetera, et cetera. It's all about what you can do. Or tools to avoid suffering. Tools to avoid suffering. All of these things tell you you have the power and you don't need God. Mm -hmm. And they're all false. Yeah. They make you feel good. Got something to do. Yeah. Yeah. Lewis might be right when he says suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Yeah. Hmm. I love that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you'll have something else, and that's darts. And you've oh, got yes. a you've got to get the darts here. I do. So yeah. I better go. So thank uh, you so much. It's been a lot of fun. We'll do it again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Thank you for being on. I'll try to if, learn something else in the meantime. Sounds you know, good. Like maybe I'll pick another book or something. Yeah. Psalms. I'll do something. We could talk about Psalms. Except Boyle's Dr. Boyle is like a psalm expert. He talked about psalms a little bit. You well, so if people wanted to learn more from you, where are some places they could go? One would be your book that's been recently published, right? Is it mm-hmm. Figuring Christ? Figuring Christ or Figuring Resurrection. Figuring right? Resurrection. And uh but for like a layperson or even anybody, I wrote a devotional book. A year in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. a year through the Old Testament for CPH several years ago now. Yeah. But I use these motifs as in a every text of the Bible, goes to the whole Bible, four hundred and some devotions, yeah. one for each day. And basically I try to apply what I talk about mm-hmm. in these devotions. And uh it's that's very accessible at any level, I think. And what's the book called again? A year. Through the Old Testament, okay, I think it's called. So kind of like that motif you took us through. It's kind mm-hmm. of like doing that, but on a much more detailed, probably short, short yeah, bites short each day. Chunks, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's that's very accessible. Mm-hmm. And then what next year, sometime I think uh, the commentary in Genesis thirty-seven to fifty, which will also have a lot of excursus, okay. excursi. Yeah, is that what they that are? sounds right? Yeah, of. Uh, Different motifs mm-hmm. found in the Joseph narratives. Okay. So, yeah. Or they can just go find a, the nearest pub with a dartboard and you might be there. I might be. It could happen. <laughs> it could happen. Yeah. Yeah. Could happen. Well, thank you for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Cheers and God me. bless. Thank you. Mm-hmm.